Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher, and as always, I'm joined by... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher, and this is All the Above, a show that's all about education. Because we know that if you care about education, it's difficult to keep up with all the ongoing complexities of American schooling. So we are here to help you with that. Thank you for tuning in, however you might be watching us or listening to us. Please remember to rate us, review us, uh, share this with your friends, Five tell stars. a loved one, tell your neighbor, so that we can really try to grow our audience and get more people talking about education and all the matters related to our schools today. All right, so Jeff, what's on the agenda for this episode? Well, Manuel, as usual, we have an excellent show for everybody today. Um, I'm very excited because we have two guests coming in who are, frankly, some of the most interesting and compelling educators that, that I know. And I, I may be a little bit biased, huh. but, uh, but I'm going to say it and I stand by my word. Um, so they're going to come in and help us uh, unpack a discussion about one of the most interesting and controversial organizations hmm. in our profession, hmm. Teach for America. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, so, man. <laughs> they ain't ready for the Teach for America discussion. Yeah, so it's going to be a good one because there's there's just uh, so much to say on so many sides yeah. of this issue about uh, about TFA as it's, it's commonly referred to. So uh, you definitely don't want to miss it, folks. Stick around. Looking forward to that. All right, but first is our Do Now where we take a look at recent headlines in education. Okay, it's time for our do now. Jeff, how are we doing the do now today? Well, man, well, you know, it's around that end of school year time. We've got, you know, proms and graduations and all the seniors need to be eligible. They do. So we got a report card today. Okay. Man, well, grades time. Check out these grades. All right, Jeff. Yes. Our first grade for today is an incomplete. Oh, man. You know, I've always found as a former principal, mm. the incomplete to be somewhat of a cop out. Especially at the end of the year, we need an actual grade. What's going on, man? Well, it, it happens. It happens. You know, just waiting on step that final to get submitted. It happens. Just need <laughs> a little more time. All okay. right. Well, in this case, the incomplete is in reference to parents showing up to school with incomplete attire. Mm. Now, this is a story that's gotten garnered a lot of attention. Um, it's coming out of Houston, Texas, where at James Madison High School, the principal, Carletta Oatley Brown, issued a dress code for parents. So she issued a memo that explicitly laid out the fact that parents will be turned away if they show up at the school wearing bonnets, pajamas, hair rollers, or leggings, among other clothing items. And within the memo, she cites the need for uh, students to be held to a high professional expectation and the need for parents to reflect that as well. So Jeff, how are you feeling about this dress code that's been issued to parents who show up to this high school? Well, that's a fascinating question because uh, at the end of our first season, we did an episode on school dress codes and uh, and we stood on opposite sides we of did. that debate. Yes. I was more on the on the pro side of having uh, dress codes and uniforms for students. Right. You were uh, in the in the against. Indeed. And uh, I think it was it was probably one of the more like flat out disagreements we've had on, yeah. on the show. Um, that said, I'm definitely on your side, or at least we'll, uh, we'll see, but what your side was yeah. um, on this particular issue, I, I just find it like school has no place issuing dress codes for parents, in my mind. Um, now, I can understand a certain community standard that's expected if a parent right. is coming nude or in their underwear or something, right, right. like if you can't go to Target with what you're wearing, yeah. then you can't come to school with, <laughs> with what sense. you're wearing, right? Uh, not to empower Target, uh, but you know, if you can't go out in the neighborhood with it, you can't come to school with it. Um, but I, I, I just find on its face problematic that we are uh, setting up school to police parents' clothing in this way. It, it rings to me very yeah. problematic. Uh, very pro problematic. So I brought a copy of the memo that was issued. Facts, and folks. 
We love facts on all of the above. Yes. Um, <laughs> in true teacher fashion, I have coffee stains on it and all that. Um, Annotated highlights. Yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> but I do want to point out a few things. So, um, so it, you know, bullet points out all the things that parents are not allowed to show up in, including, as we mentioned, hair rollers and pajamas. Uh, most of these items are um, seem directed at women. Um, there is one line that uh, references dress codes that might apply to men, sagging pants, shorts, jeans, um, men wearing undershirts, but most of this is, is things that they're asking women not to show up in, which is problematic on, on, its, on its own. But there's also a lot of just little things within this memo that show that it, was, it, it seems to have been rushed. Now, the report is that this memo was issued the day after a parent was um, kicked, out, kicked off campus for showing up in attire that violated a dress code, and the parent asked to see the dress code and was escorted off. And a, Apparently police were called on this parent. Mm. So this happened back in April and the parent was enrolling um, their students. So looking at this, this, this memo was issued the day after that event, which tells me that perhaps there wasn't actually an explicit dress code already written out. So one was written out after the fact. And in it, um, one line that stood out is that- There are a few titles. Quote, <laughs> jeans that are torn from your buttocks, parentheses, behind, to all the way down, showing lots of skin. I'm, I'm messing up here because it's written so poorly, will not be permitted in the building or the premises. Um, it's just poorly written, it's poorly spelled out. It doesn't reflect the professional um, climate that, that this principal um, claims to be trying to promote. It's just problematic in so many different ways. Um, I just, I don't like it at all. Yeah, uh, I'm with you. And I, so I will say, cause I, I wanna make sure that uh, we're, you know, we're giving some balanced perspective on sure. this, right? This particular principle is uh, apparently a very well-regarded turnaround principle right. in the city of Houston, who took uh, a, a, an elementary school, I believe, from, you know, one of the lowest performing schools in the district in the state to, you know, being an exemplary school. She was uh, uh, acknowledged for this on the Ellen DeGeneres show yeah, yeah. and stuff, right? So this is not, a person who is like some evildoer right. who hates kids and families, right? right. So I want to make sure we're not, uh, you know, giving the wrong impression there. With regard to this policy, I 100% agree with you. This is highly problematic. I think what you said about it having a disproportionate impact on women is right. completely true. Almost all of the things listed in this policy are things that are, frankly, uh, in many cases, like normal women's fashion today. Right. Leggings, like have you walked around anywhere in America? Like women wear leggings all the time yeah. to all different kinds of places. You may not like it, but if you are a woman shopping for clothes in 2019, and particularly if you're a low income woman shopping yeah. for clothes, or if you are maybe a woman who's heavier or whose weight is fluctuating a lot, right? Like there's right. also a class component here. Who's got money to buy things that aren't leggings? Uh, it just stands out to me as a policy that might be, you know, well-intended, but has very clear disproportionate impact on women, very clear disproportionate impact on black women. Yeah. And I don't know the details of parent engagement in the Houston uh, school district. Okay. Right. But if it's anything like any of the other districts that I am aware of <laughs> around yeah. the country, low income, black family engagement in school is a problem. Right. We are not doing a good enough job at engaging black families. They are disconnected disproportionately from school mm -hmm. and feel that school is not a welcoming environment for them. I don't know how to make a more unwelcoming policy than one that like polices your appearance when you walk in the door. Yeah. Right. You can't have rollers. I get we want high standards and expectations. You could argue that because of the history of racism in this country, a black woman having rollers in her hair is actually working a lot harder on her hair to have a professional, so-called professional standard than a white woman who's just walking in all frizzy and frazzled and hasn't run a comb through it today, but can just put yeah. it in a ponytail and walk around. So there's a bunch of things about this that I think are highly, highly yeah. problematic. I, you know, I, I respect the history of uh, Principal Brown's work, but this policy, yeah. no bueno. No, absolutely. And a lot of folks that whose voices I really respect in education were um, in favor of this when it came out. And that had me sort of second guess. Maybe, you know, maybe there is something to be said about schools reflecting a high expectation on parents as well. Um, but no, when I when I looked into the details, especially when I read the memo, but then when I learned that this was issued in April and it happened the day after an incident with the parent, you know, that's just, you know, any parent that's showing up to register their student in April, to me, that means there's something happened that's not ideal. 
uh, to have to register a student to a new school in April. So this parent showing up to register the school um, to, to have some kind of conflict over what the parent was wearing and for that to blow up to, to calling the police on the parent and then for the next day to issue a memo on dress code. This is all just so messy, just so ugly that, you know, I don't, I don't like it at all. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you just know that suburban white women coming to school oh, absolutely. after hot yoga, you know, yeah. all sweaty and whatever, and do not right? have the police with their, with their leggings and their yeah. undone hair, right? Yeah. As they perfectly have a right to do to right. get their child are not being told about their appearance and turned away from campus. Yeah. But the principal's black, Jeff. Hey, I mean, I, so? I'm just, someone's watching this thing. Well, the principal's black, so what are yes. you talking about? Welcome to race. America where racism is a systemic thing and not something <laughs> that just individual people do. Oh, wow. So, facts. Again, yeah. we love facts on all yeah. the above. All right, Jeff, what's our next grade? All right, Manuel. Uh, we're moving on from these unsatisfactory incompletes here yes. to an actual grade. And our next actual grade is a D. Hmm. Big, Still passing. fat. D. Uh, yeah. Still passing, though. That's the, Still Bart, going to graduate. the Bart Simpson answer <laughs> right there. So you're saying I passed. Yes. Uh, this case, uh, Manuel, means D as in debt. Mm. Um, and actually, I think it means D as in debt relief. Uh, so we have this fascinating story, uh, presidential candidate uh, who's getting a lot of buzz in the news these days because of her um, constant outpouring of policy. Uh, that being Senator Elizabeth Warren has proposed the most dramatic student aid plan in the presidential race so far. Um, her plan would forgive student loans of up to $50,000 for as many as 42 million American students. Uh, the, planned, uh, the plan, which was outlined in uh, a recent post on Medium titled, I'm Calling for Something Truly Transformational, Universal Free Public College and Cancellation of Student Loan Debt, um, would cover uh, a number of things, including an estimated $1.2 trillion over a 10-year period paid for by her ultra-millionaire's tax, which would be a 2% annual tax on the 75,000 richest families in America, um, and uh, these are folks who have uh, over $50 million in wealth. Not over $50 million in income, but they have over $50 million just like sitting around, yeah. you know, in the couch cushions type of thing, right? Um, so, uh, big news, um, exciting news potentially. Manuel, what do you think about this? Well, I love it. Um, for one, I love that she, this is not the first policy that she's outlined in a, a post on Medium. Like she's mm -hmm. uh, being very, very, uh, much on the forefront with outlining her policy goals and having explicit detail within them. So this is a post that we'll link it on our website, has all the details in there. Um, one thing that I love about it is that she spoke about how when she was 19, she had dreams of going to college and got married young and thought, you know, there's no way that she could afford college or go to college. And, and she learned that her local state college was uh, $50 a semester. And she realized that she could work part time as a waitress and afford to go to college. And she spoke about those days as being um, long gone in terms of states um, lowering the amount of, mm. of investment in higher education and the federal government instead of doing something to to get on the states about that the federal government instead pushing students towards taking out these loans and this idea of going back to a system where higher education is seen like our K through 12 system, a system that should be for everybody, that anybody should be able to access no matter their income level, no matter their background. I love it. And I love that she outlined where this money would come from because it's always like, oh, that's expensive. Where's the money gonna come from? Where's the money gonna come from? She didn't just give the, the vague, like, you know, attacks on the rich, she, she spelled out and she spoke about this in, a, I think it was a town hall um, video clip that she posted on her Twitter. She, she spoke about how the first 50 million doesn't get this tax, but every dollar over that 50 million gets this 2% tax. When you think about how many people that is, you know, 75,000 families, we filmed this near the Rose Bowl, the Rose Bowl seats. 90,000. So we're talking about, you know, the Rose Bowl full of people that make that much money yeah. uh, to benefit the entire nation. Um, I love that. And I love that she spells out the way that this plan um, helps address the, the gap in wealth between races, the racial wealth gap in, in the United States. She says a lot about supporting HBCUs and institutions that have a number of uh, students of color. I love all of it. Yeah. So I'm right there with you. Um, I'm glad you brought up the, the support for HBCUs on this. I think she's finding interesting ways to not only address the, the economic divide here, but also the racial divide, right. uh, which is really critical. Um, I also think it is uh, so 
it is fascinating uh, in this country the extent to which we have taken something, education, mm -hmm. that almost all of us would agree is really like uh, something you need, right. uh, not only K-12 nowadays, but uh, for many careers and jobs out there, like you need a college education. College right. is not just a nice to have, yeah. right? And so, but we've always kind of segmented college off and I think it's because of sort of the elite history of college, uh, but college is no longer that, right? Yeah. We've segmented it off as this thing where like, well, you're not really entitled to it, so if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. Um, and I think she's really pushing the, the ball forward here on the issue of no, college is uh, something that people need and therefore needs to be funded like we fund things that people need. And we should not allow a system that uh, issues crippling debt to students when they graduate. What I also think is interesting about this is one of the criticisms I've heard from some folks is, isn't this a policy that's almost like a subsidy to sort of middle class or, or even upper middle class folks who like really are the people that are actually okay when they come out of college right. with high debt? And I, I wanna say I appreciate the equity lens of the question, but I think she's been really smart about this. So um, the policy would, would uh, cover people uh, up to the point that they have a family income of $250,000, right? So we're not talking about people who are, you know, ex you know, at the yeah. upper middle class, like very well off. Um, you're not like billionaire rich, right? But yeah. you're doing perfectly fine, right? Uh, we're not talking about those folks here. We're talking about, um, you know, the majority of people, and in particular, the folks who have been really harmed by uh, this this debt crisis are a lot of like middle class folks who, mm -hmm. you know, um, they don't get the huge aid packages from the state or, fe or federal government, right. but they still have large costs for college, right? right? And I would say as one of those people who, you know, who grew up and had to take out more than six figures of debt in order to, to pay for undergrad and grad school, um, you know, th like that's why I don't own a home right now yeah. <laughs> because my first home is a couple pieces of paper on the wall in my apartment, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and so, it, you know, this type of policy could have had a huge uh, economic difference on my life right. circumstance for sure. And I can imagine millions of other folks in, in similar situations. Yeah, absolutely. And you think about that uh, debt cancellation part of her plan and, and what folks could do if they weren't under this burden of student loan debt regarding uh, buying a house or, or starting a small business or, or any of that. So, uh, you know, this is something that I'm, I'm loving and I'm loving that she's, she's coming forward with details for her policies. A lot of, you know, there's so many candidates out there and a lot of them don't have explicit detail written out for uh, what their policies, what their uh, actual ideas are. So, again, I love all of it. Yeah, some of them are even saying they don't need policies. Yeah, <coughs> how convenient. Buttigieg. <coughs> um, up next, people, up next. You're gonna get the Buttigieg hive. <laughs> I know, us. they're gonna come Does he have now. a hive? Maybe. I don't know I don't what know. he's got. All right, so next grade. Uh, next grade, actually, um, Jeff, for this next one. You know, grades are so old-fashioned, so 20th mm. century. It know? does feel antiquated at Why times. Why do we need even? grades? Yeah. So next story is about a new uh, community college system that is largely an online community college that is not going to issue traditional grades. And this is happening mm. in California. Yeah. So California Online Community College. That's the temporary name. Um, they are revisiting the name of it because it's not explicitly and only online. But in any case, California Online Community College debuts this fall. And the college's president and CEO, Heather Hiles, uh, mentioned that the mission of this online community college is to help people who are underemployed get fully employed and to use whatever technology and resources are required to make that mandate a reality. So this is an online community college that will not have a traditional course catalog, will not have traditional academic departments um, or a traditional grade point system. Instead, it will have technological support and an educational delivery system in job training for adult workers without college degrees who are starting jobs or trying to advance. So we just talked about student loan debt and we just talked about colleges being something that's necessary for many jobs um, in the US nowadays. Well, what about the people who've been working for a while and don't have that college degree mm. and can't uh, earn a living wage or, or can't manage to get hired in a job that does pay a living wage because they don't have the college degree? Well, this is uh, one piece of California's plan for how to support them. And in this case, this is a largely online uh, job training courses that people will take. What do you think, Jeff? 
Yeah, so I think I have, I'm of two minds on this, mm. uh, on this story. On the one hand, um, what is the stated mission and purpose of this college, I think is, uh, is a good thing, right? Okay. We have lots of people in this uh, state and of course across the country who are underemployed, who are, you know, would want to pursue perhaps a different, um, you know, tier of certification or level right. of expertise or seek career advancement in some way, right. who uh, find the cost and the, um, the sort of fitness of, of further post-secondary education to be a barrier, right? right? And so I think it's great that, uh, that as a society, we want to invest in those people and help them get ahead, right? Yep. Because the ripple effect of that is, you know, how many of these people are parents? How, right, many, right. <laughs> how many of these people are, you know, uh, trying to buy homes or could buy homes or could stay in their homes yeah. if they had this opportunity, right? So all kinds of positive ripple effects of that. Uh, so I love the idea. In reality, there's a, there's a couple of big questions I have. So um, the, uh, the idea, right, um, that uh, CEO Heather Heil shared here, right, is that, uh, and this is a quote, our operating model is that we are having employers pay people to learn their jobs, uh, Heil said, right? Sounds excellent, except uh, as we think about who these folks are and who yeah. their employers are, I'm finding it highly suspect that Walmart is about to come up off $10,000 in tuition yeah. for, you know, uh, the nice person working behind the register or sweeping the floors, right? Or that McDonald's is about to invest $10,000 in tuition for their cashiers or shift supervisors or whatever. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. You don't believe in what I but I would say you better come to the table with some proof <laughs> on this one, because otherwise this sounds like a massive public subsidy so that private yeah. companies who can benefit from a certain slice of their workforce getting better trained right. uh, can just reap the profits of that on the public no. dollar. Uh, no, <laughs> like so, I want to see corporate money paying right. for this because I believe corporations should be paying to train their workers. And if we have to invest a little bit in that to help, you know, right. uh, get, you know, make it happen, maybe give like some, you know, land grant type of thing to like establish the, the institution or whatever. Okay, mm -hmm. fine. But they better be footing the majority of the bill here. And yeah. I don't see and hear anything in this model no. that suggests that's how it's actually going to play out. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, you know, this, this, this school have two offices, two physical spaces, which sounds like they're still trying to develop the in-person component because online education doesn't work uh, for everybody. So uh, physical space in Oakland, physical space somewhere in Southern California, although that hasn't been determined yet, and the school is slated to open this fall. And when you look at the amount of money going into it, you see why a lot of uh, junior colleges across California are actually against this online college because California is giving the new college $100 million for startup costs to be spent over seven years, plus $20 million for this year's operating costs expected to be renew renewed annually. So that's a lot of money that could be going to existing community college system where a lot of this job training has traditionally taken place. And yeah. there are philanthropic grants going into this program, but they pale in comparison to the amount of money that California is investing into this school. So definitely big questions to be had. And the target audience being people who work multiple jobs or who can't earn a living wage. I think about those folks, like you said, and I think about whether or not their employers are the type that are going to pay for them to get this online job training. It's just a lot of questions there. Um, sounds like something that, again, supports private corporate America big time um, off the backs of taxpayers and how much of that are we getting back from big time corporate America? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. The devil's going to be in the details on yeah. this because like it could be great. Indeed. But let's be real in our society, like lots of things could be great and lots of things aren't mm. uh, because the people who are in charge of them, you know, uh, I'm sure their campaigns are being funded by some of these same corporations that could benefit from having their workers get a little more training or certification. So always with the politics, Jeff, always with the politics. Everything's political, man. Everything's man, just, political. Just teach, just teach math, teach history, keep that's, politics out of it. That's right. Just, just, just play basketball, right? That's, is, that All your, that. is that your argument? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, people. Um, that was that was that was a fun do now. Um, up next, we have a totally not controversial at all uh, topic, which is uh, Teach for America. So, <laughs> yeah, stay tuned. We have some excellent guests coming on to uh, help us unpack the, the 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 good side and the bad side and the ugly side, perhaps, of Teach for America. So stay tuned.
Teach for America. Let that marinate for a second, folks. I bet you're having a reaction of some kind right now. Some of you are probably getting excited, thinking about the power of a group of committed young people to transform an underfunded education system and change the lives of children in low-income communities across the nation. Some of you are probably feeling your blood boil with images of young, unprepared teachers entering into classrooms full of black and brown kids, figuring out how to do the job on the spot and plotting their two-year exit strategy to law school and the country club. And the reality is, you're both right, at least to some extent. Teach for America is one of the most impactful and controversial organizations in education today. For those who maybe aren't familiar with how TFA works, and those who are but may need a quick refresher, Teach for America is a nonprofit organization that has, for about the last 30 years, been placing talented, recent college graduates, many from the most competitive colleges in the nation, into teaching jobs in low-income districts across the country. In particular, they have brought core members into regions of the country where there have been shortages of credentialed teachers or where student achievement results have been persistently poor. This includes a huge swath of the country, from big cities like Los Angeles and New York to the Mississippi Delta and American Indian reservations in the Southwest. From its inception, TFA has not been without controversy. Reformers have welcomed its emergence as an ambitious, results-oriented pipeline of talent into a field that has, frankly, struggled to attract and retain top talent among college grads, particularly in areas of the country serving the lowest income communities. Teacher groups and other education advocates have criticized it as a thinly veiled attempt to undermine the teaching profession with untrained and unlicensed practitioners and to extract large sums of money from the public coffers. So how do we make sense of this? Is TFA the best thing going in ed reform? Is it the snake in the grass for the privatizers and charter school advocates? Or is the truth somewhere in between? To help us answer these questions today, we are joined by two incredible guests who've served as TFA core members, have worked for the organization after finishing their time, and who continue to work as educators in low-income communities today. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. I'm super excited to have you with us. We have two incredible guests here who are going to help us dig into some meaty, juicy conversation about uh, one of the most interesting organizations in our profession, that being Teach for America. Uh, to my immediate left, we have Tanya Franklin. Uh, Tanya Franklin is the Senior Director of School Culture and Restorative Communities at the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools. Uh, she also serves in a leadership role on Teach for America's Alumni of Color Collective. Uh, Tanya was herself a Teach for America core member uh, here in Los Angeles um, after she returned home from attending college uh, out of Columbia on the East Coast, um, and she taught middle school here. Uh, Tanya is not only an educator, but also an advocate. Uh, she holds her JD from uh, UCLA School of Law. And if you're friends with Tanya on social media, uh, you may be just as likely to see her out and about attending community events as you would see her uh, in some acrobatic pose at the top of a mountain. Uh, so welcome, Tanya Franklin. Um, and to Tanya's left, we have uh, Dr. Marcus Hughes. Uh, Dr. Hughes is the coordinator of teacher leadership at the Partnership for LA Schools, where he specializes in particular in supporting new teachers uh, to the profession um, in elementary schools. Marcus has worked previously for Teach for America as a coach for new TFA core members, helping to build their capacity in the classroom. Uh, Marcus was also himself a TFA core member in Atlanta, uh, but eventually returned here to his native Los Angeles uh, to continue his career in education. He holds his doctorate in social justice leadership from Loyola Marymount University. And in case you're not paying attention, that means I am by far the least educated person uh, sitting around this table right now, which is a somewhat unusual experience for me. Uh, but these are all brilliant people here to my, to my left. 
Um, and uh, Marcus is also the proud father of three, one of whom has joined us in the studio today. Shout out right. to Layla for coming with dad to the, uh, to the shoot. Um, and uh, he can often be found coaching his children's sports teams as well. So welcome, Marcus. Thank you both for joining us Thank today. Thank you for having us. And uh, so I'm, I'm really excited that you're here. Uh, Teach for America is, I think, one of those, um, one of those entities in our field uh, that's kind of a lightning rod. Like people have very strong feelings about it and there are uh, you know, lots of arguments um, for and against uh, the work of TFA. So I'm wondering for both of you, as, as people who grew up here in Los Angeles, who attended public schools, uh, who went east for college and uh, came back to your community as educators. Um, in some ways, you're almost like the, the storybook figure of, uh, of what Teach for America can be. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk about what role TFA has played in your journey as, as an educator. And maybe, uh, Tanya, we'll, we'll start with you. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for having us. Um, so when I was a high school senior, I did a little digging. I went to LA Unified Schools and realized that less of, than half of my incoming freshman class was graduating with me my senior year. And so I sort of felt from the age of like 17 that there was something wrong with the educational system in my community, but I didn't fully know how to describe it as a student. Um, but when I went to college, I saw a sign for Teach for America advertising to join the Corps um, that really spoke to what I had witnessed as a kid and what I was inspired to um, sort of be a part of going forward through my college career, my um, future in education since then. So I actually, um, I talked to the recruiter my freshman year and said, is this a work study job? Can you sign me up now? Like I really want to join Teach for America. And she thought it was really cute because it wasn't a work study job. It was a mission. Um, and I think joining the mission of one day all children in this nation will have the opportunity to attain an excellent education has really like actually been a huge part of who I am. My um, friends in the course say I have TFA in my DNA. I love that. I love that. Uh, for me, I don't know if I have TFA in my DNA. <laughs> that is amazing. But Teach for America was definitely instrumental in my being able to get into the classroom because I went to a small private school, Morehouse, shout out to Morehouse College. Um, but one thing it did not have is an education department or a program. Mm -hmm. And so I was a business major. But Teach for America allowed me to still go to school where I wanted to go, but provide me access to get into the classroom. And so it was a win-win for me. And that as soon as I signed up, and to your point, the mission drives you, right? That one day all children will receive a high quality education. I was living proof of that, but also knew that not everybody was getting it. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw the value and what they were trying to do, there was no way I could pass it up. Mm -hmm. Awesome, now I'm a 15 year classroom teacher and a lot of the most phenomenal teachers I've met started off in TFA and one of my favorite administrators of all time started out in TFA so I know a lot of excellent um, educators have come out of TFA. But I also know a lot of criticisms regarding TFA I could connect with personally. Mm -hmm. um, in 2008, I, I moved to a school that was reconstituted and a, a lot of the staff members that were brought in at that time, um, over a dozen were TFAers. And within a year or two, practically all of them mm -hmm. were gone. Um, and you know, I could speak to experiences having someone come in from TFA and not make it past October. So um, I guess the question would be like, how do you reconcile sort of that criticism of TFA and the the two-year commitment, if that, mm -hmm. um, with regards to trying to uphold the teaching profession? Well, for me, I look at Teach for America as not the final solution. Mm -hmm. it, it is what you said, there's multiple layers to the problems that you say, right. reconstitution, the fact that all staff are new teachers. Like mm -hmm. Teach for America should not be the end-all be-all with staffing. They mm -hmm. are there to bring in high capacity talented people to be part of the problem. I mean, excuse me, part of the, part of the solution to the problems that are affecting our educational system. Um, with that being said, there are some teachers that can't cut it. And that is if you're part of Teach for America or mm -hmm. if you came through a traditional route. Uh, you have the same type of turnover regardless of the organization because teaching is a very hard profession. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at the net impact of Teach for America, I, I see far greater results from people that have gone through the experience, who have 
uh, taking the lessons from the classroom, whether they did two or whether they did 10, and are still making a positive impact. Uh, those experiences that I, I've met people that have did two years and chose and went into law and did policy. They are no longer classroom teachers, yet they're helping to transform the policy and the conversation and escalating that conversation outside of just being able to be a classroom teacher. And so with that being said, no, I, I hear the criticisms and, and some I, I hate the fact that there were kids that could have been negatively impacted by a teacher quitting. But that is for all teachers and mm -hmm. all of our schools have that problem. And so, yeah, when I look at it, I don't think that's a TFA issue. It's a larger educational problem. Mm -hmm. I would only add that um, Teacher America is not just an education um, organization, it's a leadership organization, right? And so the mission is really about doing good in your community, um, at least with two years in the classroom. And so it's definitely a problem that folks are not always fulfilling their commitment. But we know that more than half do stay longer than two years, um, not just Marcus and I, but uh, it's at least 60% stay for a third year or more. I stayed for five years in the classroom. Um, but the idea is that wherever you are in health, business, law, um, you're informed by the communities that you served. And so I, I wonder if part of the criticism is a misunderstanding of the mission um, in, in leading and making change and impact in high-need communities and education being the grounding mechanism for doing so, but not um, a program to create lifelong educators. Yeah. And something to add, like specifically here in Los Angeles, when I was on staff, we started the one-day fellowship. And what that was were for core members who had finished their two-year commitment but still wanted Teach for America support. So they almost opted in for a third year. Mm -hmm. So the type of people that you are recruiting, they want to be part of the solution. And you have some that say, sign me up. And some, if they offer 10-year, they probably would sign up. However, that's to your point, that's not the mission, right? That's not part of their strategy. They, we don't want to limit someone's impact. And two years, um, though not everyone likes that number, it does give you a sense of what it's like to be a classroom teacher and make that decision from there. So I wanna, uh, I really appreciate the words that, that both of you just just shared. And as someone who, um, you know, I went the traditional teacher certification route, Manuel and I got uh, certified together uh, in, in grad school. Um, and then also someone who has been a, an administrator and gone through the hiring process and hiring in a low-income, under-resourced, historically neglected community, um, which is exactly the kind of place that, that TFA serves, I think I, I see some nuance and some tension in, um, in this issue. Whereas on the one hand, uh, amazing educators like yourselves have, have come out of TFA. And on the other hand, um, the uh, the sort of um, band-aid nature of TFA that uh, that allows the current system to continue to exist the way it exists mm. because we have new people coming in to uh, to kind of be these like sh uh, short-term influxes of talent that in and of themselves can have a really positive impact. But on if we kind of zoom out and think about the system overall. Um, you know, one of the main criticisms is that these alternate certification programs just uh, create a revolving door, which can be destabilizing. Um, now, I've also been the principal who, who is looking for a special ed teacher in middle school in the South Bronx and said, like, the, the talent pool is as shallow as it gets. And I would gladly take, you know, this 22-year-old who wants to work really hard and cares <laughs> over, you know, a long-term sub, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so I can kind of see the tension on, on both sides of this issue. But I, I would like to get your take on the, you know, people who critique TFA and say, like, it's all well and good that we're bringing people in, but they're leaving. And even if they're leaving on a slightly longer trajectory, you know, how do you address that uh, critique? Um, so there's one thing I would add, as you said, we went through TFA, like we're still a part of Teach for America. It okay. is so much, <laughs> I, and this is this is part of understanding the long-term mission, right? It is, it's two years in the classroom, but the overall mission is that you are with this movement and with this vision for life. And so um, I think I've even said that before, like I went through TFA and I need to remind myself that every day I'm a part of the mission, I'm a part of the movement. Um, 
That being said, I think to your experience of being in high need communities, we don't always have teachers lining up around the block who are highly qualified trying to get into our schools. Um, and what we do have with Teacher America is folks who have committed to a mission in a community that they are dedicated to serve for at least two years. And so um, it is tricky because I, I believe there have been some focus groups and research trying to stretch it to three years and have found that they wouldn't get the same sort of candidates. And you might know more being on staff, um, but I think two years was the sweet spot for the commitment, knowing that a lot of folks will voluntarily stay longer than that. Um, but you're right, and I think Marcus said it earlier that Teach for America is not the solution. It's one of hopefully many um, you know, pieces of the conversation to solve educational inequity more broadly. And so I'm grateful that that exists as part of the solution, but we need more and more partners, more educators working together on this um, and not just looking at Teach for America as the, um, you know, whether they're put on the pedestal or they're the fault for it. Um, they are one of many players in this conversation. Yeah, and I think to your point, Jeff, the the critique is, is understood, but I think it's very short-sighted in, in some ways if you don't see it in the context of the bigger picture. The challenge is, is if Teach for America teachers weren't there, then what? It's always a choice. You could, if, if that teacher was not part of the pool and you had to choose between a Teach for America teacher or nothing, right? You're going to go with the Teach for America teacher. Why is that even there? Teach for America exists because the teaching profession is not valued in our country enough, as well as there are not as many people desiring to be teachers like they once were. And so it's part of, um, the evolving strategy of Teach for America is like, how can I get, how can I, one, help with the immediate problem of you need a special education teacher, but at the same time knowing that just providing plug-in teachers doesn't solve the larger problem of one day all children deserve a quality education. You need administrators, you need leaders, you need advocates, you need policymakers, you need business owners, all bringing their expertise to the problem, uh, to, to the problem and then trying to find a, a collective solution. So what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say totally that we need those teachers to, to be able to go into the classrooms, but we also need them to evolve to find how they can get in and, 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 and bring a solution in different ways. If I can just add, I think um, the administrator perspective might be more similar to yours, which is that on the whole, Teacher America teachers are helpful, and the critique, I would imagine, are more from folks outside of the pressures of an administrator who has to choose who's coming into my school. Yeah. So I was a teacher for four weeks and got late, um, normed out because we didn't have the numbers four at my years, school. you mean? You said four weeks, four years. No, in the beginning, my very first year of teaching. Okay. Um, sorry, my very first year, I was teaching for four weeks and norm day hits and we didn't uh, have the numbers in upper grades. So I was a pool teacher for a week and I was, you know, Teach for America, teaching um, by making copies and supporting other teachers and I was really struggling with it. And my new principal, who then I worked with for five years, um, just saw my name on a list, saw Teach for America next to it and said, yes, we want that one. Didn't interview me, didn't have me do a demo lesson, but wow. the... Um, reputation of Teacher America and his experience having hired Teacher America core members was so positive that he knew I would do well in the role. And so I, I wonder if more administrators um, see Teacher America favorably and the criticisms comes from folks who have less experience with the really hard decisions that administrators have to make. Mm -hmm. So what would you two say Teach for America is really good at then? And then what areas does Teach for America still need to grow in? Uh, what? Great question. I would say we only that ask the great questions. <laughs> all all right. the great questions. Great questions on all the above. <laughs> that's all we do. Every time questions we ask. I think that's why. Well, that's a great question because there are different ways to answer this. I would say, from my own personal perspective, Teach for America has been great with giving me the tools and resources and additional professional development to uh, become a great teacher. Um, I did six years in the classroom. And those foundational two years were, were highly valuable. Looking back, Ev, uh, that most teachers that go into the classroom and say, hey, you're a teacher now, these are your kids, here are your students, go be great, is very, it's, it's unrealistic. And so the ongoing professional development, having the conversations about race class and my impact uh, and my own identity of what that brings, understanding uh, my students and the communities in which they're in and how to customize the education 
for uh, to meet their needs. All those are conversations that I did not have outside Teach for America. Mm -hmm. It was the very intentional about that, which allowed me to continue to uh, just grow my own craft. And and so I think that's where uh, it really was beneficial for me. I, to the other point of where does it need to grow, I think the where Teach for America is trying to do its work itself out of a job, right? Mm -hmm. And so the idea of one day all children receive a high quality education means that Teach for America no longer exists. And that's a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. Because then there's no need for a pool teacher. There's no need for you to look on a list and say, a long-term sub or this inexperienced young teacher. So I think as we continue to evolve to say, well, how do we work ourselves out of a job? That's the driving of the mission. It's not how do we continue to just sustain ourselves and continue to prop up a broken system. Mm -hmm. I would add that Teach America is really good about seeking feedback and being responsive to that feedback from the core members, from alumni, from um, administrators. It's a like learning organization, and I think that's a real model for teaching and learning and, and districts nationwide. Um, I think they've improved a lot in recruiting and retaining core members of color and teachers of color, and I think that's really important in the communities that we serve. Um, but I would say an area of growth is, especially in LA, placing in traditional schools. When I came into the core, we were largely in traditional um, LA Unified schools, and just over the years, there's been much greater placement in charter schools, which um, you know is an opportunity for innovation in uh, outside of the system to some degree. And just because we work with traditional schools, I wish that there would be much more investment in our community traditional neighborhood schools. Mm. Yeah. So. Um, the website for Teach for America makes, um, uh, you know, as one might expect, right, makes uh, big claims about Teach for America's uh, impact um, in our profession. I want to read off a few facts that are shared there and then want to um, kind of get your perspective on, like, so if these things are true, like, why does Teach for America catch so much hell from, <laughs> you know, teacher unions and, and folks who think they are the, you know, the, the force of evil in the profession, right? So uh, Teach for America um, has a 28-year track record of advancing educational excellence and equity. Uh, they have nearly 60,000 alumni and core members in 51 regions around the country. Uh, including 14,000 teachers, 3,700 school principals, assistant principals and deans, and more than 300 school system leaders. So that, that would be like school board members or superintendents. Um, they have uh, over 500 policy and advocacy leaders and nearly uh, 200 elected leaders, almost 200 social entrepreneurs. Um, and uh, this I thought was fascinating. One in five Teach for America core members had plans to teach before applying to TFA. Um, so only 20% wanted to teach before, but 85% of alumni are now working in education or in careers serving low-income communities. So, you know, that's an impressive set of statistics, right? So why does Teach for America get uh, the, the critique it gets? And um, yeah, how do you respond to that? Another good question <laughs> that I feel like all of those facts beg to say, well then, why are they getting all the critique? Like that is an impressive resume. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say it's part of the critique is about the bigger picture that you mentioned it, unions. Teach for America allows uh, an alternative way of teaching that does not require teachers to join the union in some states. That automatically poses opposition and people don't like that, right? You have an old system, an old way of doing education that, if, let's be honest, has not evolved much over the last 50 years and not to the level that we would like it to see. And so Teach for America uh, being an alternate way automatically is receiving a lot of the negative uh, attention is because it's alternative way of doing things. Um, and so with that, I, honestly, I think um, in, in, in all industries, you're going to have some haters, right? You're going to have some people who don't like what you're doing. And that's a sign that we're actually making good work because we're not sitting down and saying, Teacher America's not saying, let's continue the status quo. Because mm -hmm. the status quo has not worked, especially for low-income communities of color. Students from there are truly underserved. However, it distracts the conversation when you can say, let's talk about the teachers and let's talk about this two-year commitment. No, let's talk about why these kids are continuing to, to struggle. And so 
that is what I like to change the conversation and say, it's not just about Teach for America. If you got rid of Teach for America, then what? You still have classrooms of children whose needs are not being met. So getting rid of Teach for America, then still the problem still exists. And while people are critiquing, that's what I love about Teach for America and teachers teach, uh, that come through are, are part of it uh, or have TFA in their DNA. They continue, regardless of what people are saying, to continue to do the work. And that's why I like the organization and love working with people like Tanya, because they're not worried about what the critics are saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Marcus hit it right on the head. The critique will always come when there's change and something different, something new. It feels uncomfortable. Um, it can be perceived as a threat. And even though the organization's been around for 30 years, uh, I think there is still um, a big need to close gaps between traditional ways of teaching and learning and of becoming a teacher with Teacher America's alternative credentialing program mm -hmm. and the idea of being a lifelong educator versus um, serving for two years, potentially more, um, that, you know, I would love the day when all educators are seen as valued similarly, regardless of if you commit for just two years or for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the conversation and the tension is, is if you're only here for two years, you're not with us. Mm -hmm. When really you can teach for two years and be with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, actually, I'm glad you brought up that point and want to circle back to the issue, Tanya, you raised a, a moment ago around um, where many Teach for America core members wind up now as opposed to you know, 10 years ago um, in in charter schools. And, mm -hmm. and I wonder about the um, the reality of that feeding perhaps some of the, mm. um, the critique that like this is all part of a grand conspiracy of Bill and Melinda Gates and Eli Broad in a mm -hmm. room trying to destroy public education. <laughs> and maybe you believe that, maybe you don't, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But um, the, uh, the reality is there has been a larger number of TFA uh, core members placed into charter schools mm -hmm. and charter schools uh, in, in the case of certain CMOs in particular really view TFA as like their HR program, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so I'm wondering if you can speak to that and, um, and do you think that, uh, that TFA, that like that's a liability for TFA and perhaps an area mm -hmm. where um, you know, politically a shift would be beneficial, not only to the organization for political reasons, but to the profession. Ty, were you part of the pool that was rift? Yes. 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 Uh, can you explain just so, for our audience what, what yeah. that means? So uh, rift is a replacement, a reduction in force. Uh, it is something that the district does when they are, their numbers ratio of teachers to students is does not meet their quota. So they get rid of the uh, last in first out. So with Teach for America teachers all being new, when they needed to make district-wide cuts uh, in LAUSD uh, a few years ago, all of a sudden you had 100 plus teachers that started the year and then two months into the school year, they didn't have a job. And so what happened is they were essentially kicked out of the traditional public schools. Well, there was a need still in our charter schools Right. And so the, the challenge being what I say that is Teach for America wants to work. And when Wendy Cott wrote her dissertation, all those teachers went into traditional public schools. It was not like I want to one day fulfill this doomsday prophecy of like charter schools taking over and privatization education. No, it was about students high capacity going and giving back and being part of the solution, seeing what really the educational system was like. Now, with that, it's really about meeting needs. If traditional schools and districts are going to not allow Teach for America teachers to be in their schools, but charter schools will, then Teach for America never are going to work with charter schools. It's not, though, they're agnostic of who they want to work with. It's not like I don't want to be in, in public schools. They don't want to hire 108 teachers and then half of them don't have a job. And, and because they're the last ones to get hired. So there, so like even in Los Angeles, there's this balance of, we don't want to rely on just the traditional uh, school system districts to uh, be the sole place we place our teachers because it has historically has not always worked out. And so they try to diversify and do 50% in traditional districts, 50% in charters. That to me is a very like self-sustaining uh, strategy. 
And I'll just add, I only know um, somewhat of the LA context, which is that there are restrictions in who can come into LA Unified. So for the last several years, Teach for America and any new teachers to the district could only teach in special education, math, and science because that's where the vacancies were. So um, anybody who wanted to teach history or uh, English or elementary had to have already been in the district because we had enough of those teachers. So it like essentially prohibited new teachers from coming in. And so Teach for America had to turn to charters as opposed to placing elementary school teachers in traditional schools. There's been a little bit of a shift in the last few years. We have some at partnership schools now, um, but I think to Marcus's point, it's a desire to be in traditional schools because that's the need of our communities long-term and you have to work with the restrictions that the district is offering you. So I think you've each shared a lot about TFA that non-TFA folks like myself weren't didn't really know much about or weren't quite aware of. Um, is there anything about TFA that that hasn't been sure so far that you think people really need to know about? Um, I think, so we've said it, Mark said it multiple times, the mission is really important, but also the core values, which have changed over time. Um, but there's always been a, a deep sense of respect and humility and diversity. Um, I remember when I was, I worked at the summer institutes, the training program when core members come in, and we had one called SOPO, Sense of Possibility. We love acronyms in education. Wow. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> SOPO, it sounds like a neighborhood that's being gentrified. Yes. Oh, no. yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, to my point earlier about Teach for America really uh, taking feedback and adjusting over time. The core values have shifted over the years, but it's important for outsiders of any organization, I, I think, um, to just understand not only the mission, but the core values that keep people um, interested in doing the good work. And so I would invite folks to check those out on the website too. Yeah. And I would say that, um, like to, your, to your point, the criticisms are heard in uh, Teach for America is great at taking feedback, but the feedback is not always from the outside, it's from the in, in, from inside. Yeah. You have a lot of highly educated, high capacity people that come through Teach for America who look at the organization and from, from within say, things have to change, things have to get better. And that is why things continue to improve. I joined staff part of that because I wanted to make sure the experience that teachers that came through was diverse. They saw a male educator of color before them presenting PDs, explaining, talking about our communities from an asset-based lens. I wanted to ensure those things were happening, but it was because I also saw the experience and said, I'm gonna do something about it. And so Teach for America is evolving from within as well as hearing the critiques and the criticisms from outside. All right. Well, I think, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time uh, today. But I do want to thank our two incredible guests, uh, Tanya Franklin and uh, Marcus Hughes. Um, you can find folks uh, more from both of these guests uh, on our website. We're going to have uh, some episode extras, one-on-one -on -one interviews with them. Uh, so make sure you tune in to check that out. You can find those uh, along with all of our content on our website, which is aotashow.com. Again, that's aotashow.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right, folks, thanks for joining us today. We have come to the end of our episode and it's time for our class dismiss segment. This is where we give special props and shout outs to some of the amazing educators out there doing great work all across the country and across the world. And Manuel, who do we got today? So today we wanna to give a special shout out to Rodney Robinson this year's National Teacher of the Year. Mm. Rodney has been teaching for 19 years, most recently at a juvenile detention center in Richmond, Virginia. So he's teaching not in a traditional public school, he's teaching in a juvenile detention center and he's, he has been speaking about how he looks forward to the opportunity to speak about the students that he sees as being, quote, the most vulnerable in society and speaking on how the nation can address the school to prison pipeline. Because one of the difficulties he has, of course, is not knowing how long he's gonna have each student and having a lot of students he's spoken about who are in front of him based off of a careless mistake that has the risk of, of changing their entire life trajectory. Rodney says, this year I hope to be a voice for my students and all students who feel unseen, unheard, 
unappreciated and undervalued in America. And he says he uses his social studies curriculum that centers on juvenile justice and the prison system in collaboration with James Foreman Jr. who works at Yale University. And this just sounds like a, a wonderful curriculum that he's doing. And I can't imagine teaching any curriculum not knowing if I'm gonna see the student the next day mm. uh, based off of how many students are coming in and out of the detention center. So I'm glad we have a voice uh, speaking out for teachers and for education and for the most vulnerable students that we have in our system. That's wonderful. Um, our president, of course, received some um, controversy for not being at the official ceremony. Uh, president Trump bucked a, pr a presidential tradition that goes back to 1952 and did not present Robinson with his award as this country's best teacher. However, he did meet with Robinson inside the Oval Office and they did have a discussion there and the president told Robinson that he was glad the teacher was giving students a second chance. So shout out to Rodney Robinson. Fantastic job, we salute you. Yeah. I will fully second that, uh, and thanks for bringing us that story today, Manuel. Uh, folks, we're at the end of the episode. Thanks so much for joining us today, and uh, just one final request for you. It may seem like a small thing, but every time uh, someone subscribes to our channel on YouTube, every time someone follows us on Facebook or subscribes to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, uh, it really makes a huge difference. Um, our audience has been growing uh, slowly and steadily over the last couple of years. And uh, if you like what you see, um, subscribe, give us a thumbs up, give us a five-star rating, and be sure to share this with your friends. We'd love to uh, kind of expand the conversation here about education uh, through our All of the Above community. So thanks again for joining us. Uh, find all our content on our website. That's aotashow.com. Again, that's aotashow.com. See you next time.